you know, you just don't accept good. You know, you always, okay, it can always be better, it can always be better. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Hello. I feel like I should say something nice about T-Bach. Oh, <laughs> because he got reelected. I am very glad he got reelected because we get to say T-Bach for four more years. It's just everybody had such nice things to say about him before <laughs> they gave any report or anything. So I feel like before we start the episode... We need to say something nice about T-Bach and, and make him a little embarrassed and, you know, a little a little humbled by it all. Exactly. So this week is the IOC session, which is one of the big meetings of all of the members. And they but they get reports on what's going on with the different committees in the IOC. And they they take important votes like this important vote this time was who was going to be the IOC president. It was bound to be T-Bach because he was running unopposed. So he will have a four-year term that will end in 2025. And then everybody proceeds to tell him why he's so wonderful and they're so happy he was reelected. Exactly. And the agenda. And then they moved on to passing uh, the final report of Agenda 2020. And then there was another round of how wonderful this was. Yeah. So not much substance today, but the next couple of days, right. we should see a little bit, a little bit more substance from the IOC meeting. We can, we'll, we'll chit chat about that next week. Okay, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and we get to see everybody's room on Zoom. That's probably the best part. <laughs> probably, certainly for today, it was exactly. Okay, hey, I'm loving your audio quality. Don't I sound awesome? You do sound awesome. You know why? listeners because our patrons helped us get some new audio equipment which is just in time because allison was taping her microphone together the last few weeks and it was it, it was pretty desperate it was and we don't mean taping like oh she's recording no i actually had like blue sticky tape wrapped around it like a nerd's glasses yeah, it was it was pretty rough, but thankfully your patrons helped fund some new equipment for us, so we are good to go for a long time. We really appreciate that. And you can become a patron and make this show special. Patrons keep the show going and they get special benefits for doing so, including exclusive episodes. So you can join today at patreon.com slash flame alive pod. Today, we've got a long show for you, if you haven't noticed, because we had a fantastic interview with a couple of sailors. We talked with Americans Stephanie Roble and Maggie Shea. They compete for the USA in the 49er FX team vote, and they punched their ticket to Tokyo by winning bronze at the 2020 49er FX World Championships. We talked with them about how their sport works. And just a note of clarification, because it, it's not super clear right away, but Maggie is the first sailor that talks with us. Take a listen. Maggie and uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the show. We have a lot of questions about sailing because it's kind of a black hole in our knowledge of Olympic sports. So tell us what kind of boat is the 49er FX and how it differs from a 49er? 
Well, first of all, thanks for having us. We're really excited to share more about sailing and we appreciate your interest in the boats. Um, we sail the 49er FX, which stands for 4.9 meters. So it's about 15 feet long, maybe 16 feet long. The FX means that it's got a fractional mast. So we have the same boat hull as the boys, like the platform we actually sail on is the same, but the tall stick that goes up in the air that holds our sails up, which we call the mast, uh, is shorter. And it's a smaller sail area percentage based on, you know, females generally having smaller body weights. So the ideal weight is a smaller combined body weight for the two women, whereas the boys is a little bit higher. Is that regulated, the weight of the boat and the weight of the sailors? The weight of the boat is closely regulated. The weight of the sailors is not. And it's been a funny trend in our class. Usually um, boats, after several years of sailing the boat, will the, the class will sort of figure out, okay, this is the ideal weight to sail the boat. And our class, we started sailing thinking it would get lighter and it's actually gotten heavier and heavier. So Steph and I have been on a bulking program, which we can't <laughs> complain about, but we've um, gained about 12 pounds each, 10 to 12 pounds each um, mm -hmm. over the last year and a half because the class just keeps getting heavier and heavier and we found it's actually more competitive. So that's been a fun game. Steph gets a lot of hand-me-downs from me and <laughs> I get to go shopping and yeah. <laughs> well, Allison, I think we found our sport. So, because <laughs> I, I so too have gained 12 pounds in the last year. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think a lot of people have. <laughs> it's a trend. <laughs> What is it about a heavier body that makes it easier or better to sail the boat? So our boat is built for, for speed and for planing. And we start, the boat starts planing in conditions like eight to 10 knots of wind speed. Once you're in that wind speed, you want to be able to carry as much power as you can on the boat. And so we, if you're a heavier body weight, you can carry more power to just get through the waves or whatever. So a powerful setup is usually faster. Um, but also it's just, yeah, it allows us to have more riding moment with our weight as well. So yeah, more power is faster, basically. Um, What's planing? Um, so planing is when the boat wants to like lift up kind of out of the water. Um, Maggie, maybe you have a better definition for this than me. Um, you see motorboats do it a lot where motorboats will start accelerating and the front will kind of stick up out of the water and then they go faster and faster and faster and then it kind of levels out. That means most of the boat is actually up on top of the water because it's reached a certain speed based on the design of the boat. And that's good. Yes, that's good. Okay. Yeah. You know, you know in your car, like you drive over a puddle and, you're, and your tires and you're going too fast and your tires are like hydroplaning? Hydroplaning. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of what we do on our boat. Yeah, we try to get to a point where the boat is like mostly on top of the waves instead of pushing through it. If you're, if you're pushing water, you're in what's called displacement mode and you're displacing the water. And then as soon as you're planing, you're really on top of the water. And then the next evolution of that is foiling, which a lot of boats do nowadays. You've seen those boats that are going in the water, but they're totally above the water. That's yeah, it's like some Star Wars stuff. <laughs> right, yeah, they look really <laughs> yeah, That's all foiling. And that, those, um, the blades, which are the big uh, boards, basically they're fiberglass boards that go, or carbon on our boat, fiberglass. Uh, they go into the water and they basically counteract the writing moment Steph was talking about, which is your body weight. And our, on our boat, you can plane, so the boat gets up and goes just above the water. And then hydrofoiling would be as if it was to pick you up out of the water completely. Our boat doesn't hydrofoil, uh, but we do plane, like Steph was talking about. And when you get to that planing stage, is that kind of one of those magical moments where you just kind of whoosh and take off? I've been watching a lot of FX over the last 
couple of days and it's just now it's kind of like oh man lean uh, one I think that would be hard but two it, it looks like when you're all leaned back and going just on top of the water it looks like it's so much fun yeah it definitely is it's a it's a really fun boat to sail and especially in some certain conditions when it's just like flat water and 12 to 15 knots of wind like the boat just sails so beautifully and so fast and it's really fun all around the course. Steph is the speed demon and I'm the risk averse one. <laughs> so it's kind of a fun dynamic on board. Like, I mean, even when we're driving on the highway, I'll go 55 miles an hour and Steph goes 80 miles an hour, you know, and, and we're always kind of pushing back on each other in that way. And it's a good team dynamic. When we're sailing, Steph is the fearless one who just sends it and wants to get the boat to go 20 miles an hour. Uh, and I'll be like, oh, oh, do you see that wave? Do you see that wave? You know, and, and it's a pretty important dynamic that one person's kind of holding back and the other one's pushing really hard. But we've been having fun lately trying to go, okay, we're going 19 miles an hour. Let's try to go 20. Let's try to go 21, you know, and uh, push our comfort zones and, and get out outside of our comfort zones and um, find that extra bit of speed. Steph's really good at it. Do you have like gauges on the boat that you can see how fast you're going? While we're racing, we don't yeah. have, we don't have that. We, we're only allowed to use a compass and a watch for electronics on the boat. And the watch can't have any GPS functions. And they actually check for that because you know Garmin's and GPS watches are so popular now, but we're not allowed to use them. Um, however, during training, we do incorporate GPS technology or something to help us with speed. Um, and we have, we've really been working a lot on our, on our technology program recently. We've been learning a ton from incorporating new technology. It's, it's been a huge game changer within the sport, not only in our class, but multiple different classes. And um, it's just amazing what the feedback that we can get on board when we have these, these instruments on board with us. So what is the boat made out of? Fiberglass. Okay. And it, how many sails? Because sometimes there's a couple, sometimes there's more. Yeah, there are three sails. The, the big one is called the main sail. The small one is called the jib. I have no idea why. On big boats, you would call it the head sail because it's like on the front of the boat. Uh, and then the, the big sail that we only put up when, when we're sailing in the same direction as the wind is blowing. So we call that downwind. When we're sailing downwind, we put the spinnaker up. Okay. That's so two or three. If you're going into the direction of the wind, you only have two sails up. If you're going with the wind, you've got three sails up. And what is the sail made out of? Are they all made out of the same thing? Nope. The see-through sails are made out of mylar. Um, and it's basically like a really thin plastic. And Steph, I'm spacing. Is it Dacron, the spinnaker material? Dacron is a, it's much, yeah, super thin Dacron. So it's stretchy. It's 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 in the same category as Lycra. Dacron is. It's that sort of stretchy man-made material. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's not exactly stretchy, and actually, the sails stretch out with age. And so, if they are stretching out too much, then they're not really holding their shape, and they get slow. It's, they're not as fast. So you've got to watch how many hours you put on a sail because they can either stretch out and not hold their shape or they can shrink and get too small. So the sun is not a friend to sails, you know, in terms of aging, but the big, the big colorful ones you see, those are called spinnakers and they're made of a light material. And, and that basically that sail is designed just to catch the wind and push you downwind with the wind. Whereas the mylar sails, the see-through plasticky looking ones help you go upwind. And so they're designed a little bit more efficiently. So one of the choices you're making is how much you know, whether you're putting that sail up, not putting that sail up, the positioning, uh, all those elements with the sail itself. 
Yeah, on a on a big boat, you know, like a 40 or 50 or 60 foot boat, you would have several like an inventory of sails and you choose which one you put up and the size and the or the shape and the weight of the material would be based on the wind strength. On our boat, all those decisions are made for us, which is kind of nice. It's a one design boat, so we actually can only sail an entire regatta with one mainsail, one jib and one spinnaker. And they all have to be made by the same sailmaker in Sri Lanka. And you have to buy it, you know, with a certified sticker and badge and everything on it. Sometimes they'll measure it in, check all the numbers, serial numbers to make sure that you don't have any special cut sail. Um, and it takes out, you know, the whole design element of the sails. So we're kind of lucky to sail this one design. It's basically like a box rule for like racing, you know, but the idea is that you get equipment supplied from the very specific distributors. Our boats are made in New Zealand is one distributor, a uh, boat, boat builder. And then in the UK is the other boat builder. And then our sails and our masts are made in Sri Lanka. And then you've got dealers all over the world, but those are the only places you can buy the boats and the sails and the spars from. Yeah, and one, one cool thing about the one design racing is that in theory, all the equipment is the same. Um, like Maggie said, it's this box rule that, so that it really puts performance on the sailors. You know, it's not necessarily an arms race to who can get better equipment and more equipment. It's like, it's really on us as the athletes and sailors to sail this equipment that the person next to you and the person ne next to them has the same equipment. And it's about who can read the wind better, who can make a better game plan, who can execute better boat handling um, all around the race course. So on the boat, you have two different roles. Yes. Correct. One of you is a crew and one is a skipper. Correct. So tell us what the differences between those are and, and who does what. So Maggie's the crew and I'm the skipper, which basically means Maggie does all the hard work and I don't do anything. Um, I just drive the boat. Um, yeah, Maggie has the big guns and does all the hard work. But in all seriousness, it is two very different roles. I, I drive the boat around the race course and I'm kind of making decisions based on like what I'm seeing around the course, how, you know, tactical decisions that we want to make based on um, what we know about the wind and what boats are doing and where we are in the course and what position we're in in the fleet. Whereas Maggie is make she's really focused on the speed of the boat I and mean, she's reading the wind that's immediately in front of us. She trims the mainsail upwind and I drive and then downwind. I have the mainsail where she has the spinnaker. So she hoists the sails and takes the, takes the spinnaker down and then, yeah, trims the spinnaker downwind as well. So she's really focused on, on those sails around the race course and making sure that we're going really fast. Um, and then she also gives input on our compass bearing and, and any sort of tactical situations that she's seeing um, ahead of her as well. Do you have anything to add into that, Maggie? <laughs> yeah, I would let you summed it up. <laughs> Steph's the driver, and people would call me the crew or the trimmer. So I'm trimming the sails. And both of our jobs are just totally based on reading what the wind is doing and guessing what it's going to do next. So Steph has to look up the course, the race course, and decide where is the most amount of wind and basically get us to that as part of the race course. And, and that's her job. It's pretty tactical and strategic. Like she has to be eyes out of the boat and looking around, finding the next little bits of wind. Um, the other thing that is important for both of us is that the wind might blow from one direction generally, but it varies slightly or a lot. You know, some days it's like blowing from a range of 30 degrees, you know, and, and you can feel those days when it's just like 
the wind is confused and it's coming from all different directions and it's gusty and blustery and um, it's inconsistent. And some days it's very consistent. And as sailors, we need to figure out what's that pattern. You know, is it is it changing in one pattern in one direction or is it changing randomly and how to take advantage of it? Because we can't sail directly into where the wind is coming from. We have to tack back and forth is what we call it, like basically turn back and forth. And so you, you gain an advantage by being on the tack that's slightly closer to where the wind's coming from. So Steph has to figure out how to put us on that favored tack, you know, pointing closer to the wind for a longer period of time. And then I have to figure out how to adjust the sails on the boat. Um, I'm constantly adjusting the sail shapes and positions, like the angles that they are to the wind with trimming um, to make the boat go as fast as possible. Does that all make sense? Is it? Yeah, yeah, it does. So how is the course set up and what do you have to do? Because I, I look at some of these races and I see boats just go all over the place in a lot in lines, but they're all over the place. Yeah, I'd say that that's one thing with with our class is that because we're sailing at such high speeds and we sail very wide angles to the wind upwind, we do tend to like get really far away from each other. So it seems like we're very scattered, which makes managing the angles between boats very hard and like how you're going to like come back together with the other boats at the top of the course but our course is pretty simple um it's just a starting line which is between like a race committee boat and a buoy at the other end or another race committee boat and then we have the windward mark which is the upwind mark and then we have the leeward marks which is um, usually set just above the starting line and we basically sail two lap race course so we start we go up to the windward mark, we go down to the leeward marks, which we also call the gate because there's two of them and you choose which one you want to round. And then we go back upwind to the windward mark and then sail downwind to the finish line. So it's just, just a two lap course. But you could choose which direction you go your lap in. Um, or no, do you all have to go around? Like if, if I have to put it on land for a second, do you all go counterclockwise or do you go clockwise or do you get to choose counterclockwise or clockwise? <laughs> So we go at the windward mark, we make a left turn okay. around it. And then at the the leeward mark or the gate, if there's one mark, then we make a left turn around that. Um, if there's two marks, when we have the gate, we can go either left turn or right turn. But the windward mark is always a left turn. And that's because of the way that the rules are, the right of way rules are set up between boats. It makes the, the roundings the safest. So how physically, big are these courses? You know, how far apart are those marks? About a mile. The, yeah. the race lasts 30 minutes, usually. That's the target time for our boat because it's a very physical boat. And you basically want to do like short bursts of tons of energy, like interval training, you know, for this, like this format racing. And so it's about two 10 minute legs and two five minute legs. So it takes about 10 minutes to get to the winter mark, step time up, five minutes to get downwind, 10 minutes to get back up. Five more minutes get downwind. So in the sailing world, this is more sprint than marathon. Exactly. Yes. yes. yes totally. Definitely. Marathon racers are um, much bigger course. Their races can last like over an hour and they train for more endurance. You know, their heart rate will be 120 to 130 the whole time. Their muscles have to be more yeah, built for endurance. Whereas we are like short explosions of power. Do people ever get just totally blown off the course? Just like lost? Not necessarily lost. I mean, like maybe a handful of times in our, in the 15 years that Steph and I have like sailed together or with or against each other, like weird situations. One time we were saying in Boston, fog rolled in and you couldn't see any other boats, you know, like just, it's kind of a mistake, honestly, if that happens. Like it's kind of the race committee's fault if they have you out racing in conditions that are 
it's not their fault, but you know, if they're holding a race and that's in the forecast, then it's a mistake, you know, not on our race courses. We're all pretty close together. Our boats do wipe out, you know, we, we capsize a lot, which is when you see a boat flip upside down. And that's just mainly because the boat's a really high performance boat. It's really difficult to sail in a lot of conditions. And so Steph and I laugh sometimes that we train, like our training is, we basically will spend an entire days working on like the building blocks, you know, like the, the basic maneuvers because it's important to master the basic maneuvers, obviously, but also because in certain conditions they can be really challenging to execute. Uh, so sometimes it'll be a really windy day and we'll go out and practice jiving, which is just turning and uh, turning downwind. And we'll laugh like, okay, we nailed three out of five jibes today, you know, woohoo. And, and it's, we kind of laugh like, we're going to the Olympics, you know, like that's, that's a fleet. Like it, it's that challenging of a boat that like some days you can't jibe, you know, and if it's really windy in extreme conditions or yeah, it's just a very like humbling boat because it can be so challenging to sail. So if you capsize, how much danger are you really in? It's yeah, we've luckily knock on wood have not been in a dangerous situation and you know when it's coming to like you kind of brace for impact and you know we have like on our team we um we kind of have our protocol for like when it does happen and based on how it happens we have certain jobs or certain things we need to do to get the boat back up right but you know that being said like we have a coach boat out there with us all the time and then there's safety boats and there's tons of coaches around so if anything were to happen we're able to like wave someone down pretty easily but yeah, it's, it's, like I said, we have our protocols for what, hap- for what we need to do if or when it happens. But we also, like in racing, if we know it's extreme, those extreme conditions like Maggie was talking about, we do have like kind of quote unquote like safety maneuvers. So if we're like winning the race and we only have to make one more jive into the finish line, we're like, okay, deep breath, safety maneuver. We just have to cross the finish line here because obviously we try to avoid capsizing at all costs. <laughs> right, because how long does it take you to get the boat back up? And back back to racing. Minutes. And, um, based on like the conditions and then also like the way that we capsize, like if we do it downwind and which is the most common way to capsize, you have to get the spinnaker in and like the wind will like blow the boat over. So it's actually totally capsized. Like the mast is underneath the water, um, which we call t- turtling the boat. So we turtle, then it takes a long time. I have to like hang on to Maggie and we have to create a bunch of weight to like bring the mass back up underneath the water. And it can, it can take like, I don't know, between five and 10 minutes, maybe. Okay. There are like really extreme days where capsizing is part of it, you know, and if you don't capsize, you'll be in the top five. If you do capsize, you could still be in top 10. Uh, and that's like the really most extreme conditions that we race in when the waves are really big and there's a lot of wind. In this fleet, capsizing is just part of it. So you do learn these protocols. I would say we're not like at grave danger, you know, or risk of like, in generally speaking, it, it's pretty safe. Uh, we do get minor injuries a lot though. You know, like that's, you do get pretty thrown around the boat, but that's part of it. And we wear thick wetsuits and helmets and we have fun. No, I, I'm a big fan of biathlon. And the, the thing about biathlon is you never know who's going to win. And that seems to be what sailing is like. On a, you never know who's going to win on a given day. And so since you all have the same type of boat or the, you know, the same manufactured boat, it really is skill and anybody could be on top of the podium. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a sport that's different day to day. You know, we can show up for racing one day and have massive waves and 20 to 25 knots of breeze. And then that front passes. And the next day we have five knots of breeze and it's, 
flat water. It's a totally different sailing condition. So one thing that we really try to focus on is being well-rounded in all those conditions because maybe one team is really, really good in, in windy conditions, but they're not as fast or good in, in light air conditions. So, you know, at, at the Olympics, we can expect to see anything with the conditions. And so we're really focusing on trying to be well-rounded with our skills in all of those conditions. Talking about uh, Tokyo, uh, one thing I read was you were training in Miami for a while, partially the humidity of Miami was a way to help you with the humidity in Tokyo. What does humidity do to you, especially if you're wearing a big wetsuit? The humidity makes your day terrible. No, but we're, we're quite lucky because we can just jump in the water between races. Um, Miami was really great training for Japan because both are such extreme conditions, like so, so hot, 105, 110 degree um, heat index with like 90% humidity, really strong UV index. So that's terrible. We, you know, it, it really affects you on land when we're in the boat park or generally our boat parks are like parking lots or concrete, you know, then you got to do a bunch of boat work bent over this boat and it's super hot or in your container that is just like an inferno. And so, yeah, it was great to do some training. We have, we wear like ice vests on shore um, when we finish races because it's so hot and we're sweating so much. Like you almost can't consume enough water throughout the day to keep up with like how much you're sweating. And I think that's pretty exaggerated in humidity. When we have been there in the past, you know, we've done some like hydration testing and we figured out some days you need like six to eight liters of water, which just takes so long to actually physically drink that much water, you know? Um, and you have to space it out. But we finish races and we take big blocks of ice and shove it down our gear, you know, and, and just try to take those 10 or 15 minutes between races to get your body temperature down, hydrate as fast as possible with as much electrolytes powder as you can stand, you know, and go for it again. Some teams had like, <laughs> they made, had they'd makeshift ice baths in like garbage bins. <laughs> Everyone is like, whatever you can do, you know, there's, Steph loves to make fun of me when I put my ice vest on and I've got a big brimmed hat on and my like spandex on, you know, and I'm like, I'm ready. And have <laughs> just smeared zinc oxide all over my face. But the, the threat is real. Like there, a lot of people got heat stroke in the first couple of regattas we did there. And, yeah, you really have to manage it. Gear-wise, we do have like different gear for different conditions. Like, you know, if it's really cold and really windy, we have super thick wetsuits that have knee pads and shin pads and are reinforced in certain areas. And then like for lighter air, we have like, or hot conditions or lighter air, we have like lighter weight wetsuits that maybe just have like knee pads, light, lighter weight knee pads built into them. And we just wear like a Lycra top as opposed to a wetsuit top. And so we do have like, obviously different gear that we wear. And, but one thing that we do always have to have on is our harness and our life jacket. So in those extreme conditions, it does get pretty hot. So that's why Maggie was saying, you know, between races, like your core temperature is just like out of control from that race. So you really try to like get your, your core temperature down from having your life jacket and harness on. Um, so you gotta get the ice block system has been working pretty well for us. <laughs> so wind speed, the amount of waves, but does the water temperature make a difference to how fast you can go? No, the water temperature doesn't. Um, it really changes like how painful it is when the water hits your face. <laughs> Luckily, I have Maggie to block the waves for me. <laughs> yeah, some really cold days I can tell she's like tucking behind me. I'm like, yeah, okay, back there, you know. <laughs> but um, we joke that in San Francisco Bay, the water's so cold, it's like ice daggers, you know, it just really hurts. Um, and then in Japan, when it's so hot, you're like, please, please spray me. You know, you like want it to, get, you want to be wet. 
the, so the, the water temperature doesn't affect that as much, but the um, air temperature affects like the density of the air. So you, it feels a little different to sail in a, in a venue where the puffs are very cold and it's like, it hits harder, you know, whereas like Miami is very like nice sailing. Generally, it's very pleasant in Miami. It's quite nice. It's like light air, warm air, warm air. So temperature wise, that's the big factor. How much have you been able to sail in Japan? just previously in your careers and, and obviously not leading up to Tokyo. We've done what, four or five trips there, four trips um, over the last three years. Um, So we've spent a good bit of time there and it's important that we spend time there during like a similar time to the Olympics, because if, you know, we'll have certain conditions at that time of year. Whereas like, if you were to go in the fall, like in October, you'd have different conditions. That being said, it's still nice to go and get the experience of actually being there because even on shore, it's such a different place and, you know, getting used to, you know, the logistics on shore and even the different food is, is really important. So we've been there enough times to feel really comfortable in the venue um, on and off the water. How are people able, because when I know Jill was saying she was watching, I was watching some as well. And obviously there's the safety boats and, and the, the officials boats. But are there any spectator boats out there? Occasionally. Yeah. Um, the best sailing coverage is the live like drone coverage or onboard live cams. Those are really cool to watch. Spectator boats are very kind of rare at the Olympic level regattas. Like sometimes the professional regattas will have a bigger spectator build out. But um, we generally race like pretty close to shore, but it, it would be very hard to see from a far distance yeah. what's actually going on. So when we're watching it on television and we're watching the drones, how can we tell? I mean, it's sometimes hard to tell who's in the lead. You know, and how, how to watch a race is, is a little tricky because it's not just, you know, like the 100-yard dash, oh, the person who crossed the line first, because there isn't a set lane. Yeah, for sure. And there's so much changing all the time. You know, the wind changes a little bit and you can go from looking really bad in the race to looking really, really good. So it that, and that's, so sometimes for us, it's really hard to tell who's winning. And, you know, when it's that kind of day, we just have to focus on what we sailing, what we think is our shortest course to the mark and trying to sail in the most amount of wind as possible. Yeah. To answer your question, it is really hard <laughs> to me. One rule of thumb that you can usually use like on the first leg, which is upwind. So we're going toward the, direction of where the wind is coming from boats that are basically like blocking other boats from the wind generally have an advantage so people when you see two boats and if one is closer to where the wind is coming from and the boat behind you know or what we call to leeward, so like further away from where the wind is coming from you know if, if their wind is basically being obstructed by the boat in front then that's a big disadvantage so that's one thing to look for I don't know if that's helpful <laughs> if that's what you meant <laughs> it absolutely is. What about the coverage of sailing bothers you as the athletes in the, in the, in the sport? Well, I think first of all, like the coverage has gotten so much better over the last few years that, that I actually think we should take a moment to like praise that <laughs> because the coverage has gotten so much better. And it's actually really cool for us as athletes, because after an event, we'll go back and watch a lot of the footage and like getting that drone perspective is actually really cool. We can learn a lot about our tactics and strategy and um, what other competitors are doing. So that's pretty cool. Or even what you wish was different. 
what you would like to see what you think people, because a lot of people don't, you know, like we were saying, don't watch sailing because they don't mm -hmm. show it. And when they do show it, it's confusing as to what's happening. So what do you think could be to, to draw more people into it? I think the science behind sailing is really cool. Um, and, and people actually like, they know a lot more about sailing than they think they do. You know, when you, when you start comparing sails to airplane wings, people are like, Oh yeah, I get that. Okay. I think if people, if, yeah, if we could promote like a short explanation of the science behind sailing, I think it could help people understand a little more of what they're looking at. Maybe, but maybe that's just boring. I don't know. I find that stuff cool, but I don't know. Maybe people would be like, ah, this is, this sport seems even more complicated than we thought and it would scare them away. I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, it's interesting how much science is involved with sport and how many like angles you have to measure and for you measuring the wind and, know, and knowing that stuff. I, I think it's fascinating. Totally. Yeah. And Steph and I, we love to take a really academic approach to our campaign. So we love when a coach is like, okay, we're going to sit down and have a debrief and teach a lesson. And then we cherish our notebooks and our call books and our spreadsheets and our game plans and our playbooks, you know, like all those things are we're very, uh, we like to take an academic approach to it. So we, we find that stuff. We love geeking out on that stuff. So in term, terms of game plan, do you build different game plans for different weather situations? Yeah, for sure. So our process each day is to, on a racing day, we'll receive a forecast from a professional meteorologist and then our coach and well, our coach and Maggie will read it. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of reading it. I like to get the, the cliff notes version from the coach and Maggie. <laughs> then after the forecast is read, then we actually get on the water and we say like, okay, are we seeing what they forecasted? Okay, like yes or no. And then we also like take into account like, okay, what type of day is it? Is it a day where the wind is just like coming from the open ocean, we call that maybe like a sea breeze day and the wind has certain characteristics on that type of day. Or is the wind like coming over the land where you have like super, the wind is like really shifty and changing a lot in velocity and changing a lot in angle. So those are two totally different types of days. And then that changes our tactics and our strategy and how we set up the boat and all sorts of things. So we definitely have like different plays and different moves for those different conditions. Maggie, I mean, when you look at the weather report, what excites you about that? Wind strength can excite me for sure. If I see a windy day, I'm like, it's on. It's going to be a big one. It's important as a crew uh, also to just have an idea of how physical the day is going to be because I might require a lot more calories or a lot more water or, you know, th those are pretty basic. A lot more gear if it's going to be cold. You know, that that's all pretty like basic on the forecast. The cool thing about the forecast is like you basically conduct a scientific method every day. You know, you have this forecast, which is a hypothesis, and it's someone saying, hey, high, high confidence, low confidence, average, you know, they kind of tell you how sure they are based on all the different models they look at. And they have this guess of what's going to happen. Then you go out sailing, and it's just a race to see who can make more observations about the race course. Because like Steph said, it's just never the same day to day. No two race courses are ever identical. You know, there's never consistent wind all the time exactly the same sometimes the patterns will be similar so you'll get used to like sailing in that venue you have to race to that wall you know and that and the patterns can be similar you know and the geographic features can have the same impact on the wind in different race courses but they're really never ever ever the same so you go out throughout the day and you're just gathering data right okay we thought the wind was going to shift right at 10 o'clock we think that's going to happen uh 10 o'clock rolls on did that happen 
yes or no, you know, and yes, okay, then, then our confidence in the next thing that the forecast mentioned is higher. Uh, and if not, it's lower, you know, so we're constantly assessing, like, this is what we think is going to happen. Did that happen? Yes or no, gather that piece of data and helps us make the next decision even better. Some days we say you have to have short memory, you know, like it's, it's anyone's game. The forecast was totally weird or, or we get out there and it's not at all what it is. Rip it up and throw it out. <laughs> yeah. Just forget what you read completely. And we'll remind each other, have a short memory because we'll say, okay, last leg, that side gained. And then that side gained and then unclear what happened after that, you know, and then we just say, okay, we got to forget about whatever's happened in the past. Steph has to look up the course, see what she sees, trust her gut and sail to that win. So the, yeah, the, the forecast is, Cool in the sense of it's just a guess what's going to happen, but the strategy that we tweak throughout the day is uh, is another really interesting part of sailing. I think. How are you able to communicate during the race? Because I would imagine it's very loud. It's not like super loud, but it, like I think clear. Something we focus on is super clear communication. We're actually like standing like literally right next to each other. Like I could whisper in Maggie's ear <laughs> if I wanted yeah. to. And like downwind, we actually like basically like hold hands sometimes when it's really wavy. <laughs> um, so we're, we spend a lot of time like really close to each other. Yeah, did you get new detergent? I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah. How did you know that? Like we spend too much time and we're right next to each other. Yeah, or sometimes like Maggie has bad breath or something. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Never. I would never have that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's from all the shop blocks I eat. Stuff can like <laughs> take the shop blocks and goo gels and everything. She's like, what's that? So talking isn't hard. I would say like when my heart rate gets up, I mumble and Steph is really good at deciphering Maggie mumble, you know? So that's one thing. Like when we've had coaches, they put audio recorders in our life jackets to, so that we can improve our communication. Sometimes on Twitter, they're like, we have no idea what Maggie said all day and stuff's like yeah I did I got it you know and uh so they the audio recorder almost always goes on Steph now because they gave up on deciphering me my mumble but um Steph Steph gets it sometimes there's it's probably a very small vocabulary of words we use you know if you if you wrote down all the words we use during a race it's probably like less than 100 words because you get so used to seeing the same situations that the same and you have to use the same words every time so we debrief that a lot you know if I say one thing or if Steph says one thing, like calls out a play and I do the opposite, you know, that's, uh, that's not fast. So um, we, we talk a lot about what those short little phrases mean. Mm -hmm. We communicate with other boats. We actually, our coach told us recently that <laughs> I was shouting in another boat because some rules require you to shout and like kind of alert the other boats. Um, and then some situations from a, from a self-preservation standpoint require you to shout, you know, when boats are converging quickly and you're not sure what they're going to do. And it was funny because our coach was like, I have no idea what you were yelling about to that boat. And, and, and languages come into it. You know, it's all, we're sailing. English is the, the official language of sailing. But if I'm not clear in what I'm saying in English, or if uh, heart rates are high and boats are converging at fast speeds, like you have to make sure your point gets across. And so she was saying, hey, you say this one thing instead of that, because that really makes a point and that doesn't. So I think that's an interesting part of it. When, when you talk about your heart rate getting high, what numbers are we talking about? My heart rate, I'll reach my max uh, 195 sometimes on the boat, um, if it, especially if it's a really physical day. But over the course of a race, it'll probably average 160 um, and then spike when we do a lot of maneuvers. Steph has a different day, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. No. Um, <laughs> um, I usually, I average like 110 to 120 during racing, and like around the, around the marks. Um, 
maybe 140, 150. If we're yelling at another boat or things are really intense, like maybe 160. Uh, yeah, I, I have a very different day on the boat than Maggie does. <laughs> so is your off-boat training then very different? Yeah. Yeah, and it's a big reason why our jobs are so different. You know, when my heart rate's 170 for several minutes uh, and spiking in the 180s, 190s, like I just can't think as clearly as Steph, you know, and that's why our words are really quick and concise. And sometimes I'll even communicate that like, hey, I'm, I'm maxed out. You know, you gotta, you have to think for both of us basically is what that means for the next five minutes or two minutes until I recover, you gotta think for both of us. And we, we have a lot of those trade-off moments, you know, like especially Steph's really focusing on something driving. And she'll say, okay, uh, no eyes or something. And that means to me, okay, you look at what that boat's doing because tactically next move is determined by when they do that. And so we have a lot of these trade-offs where we'll say, we'll tell the other person, whether you're thinking clearly or whether you can see well or um yeah so some of it has to do with physicality and then some just just a job division responsibility so how long were you sailing together before you felt like you would really do well together in races like how long does that relationship take uh we've been sailing together since we were in high school so does that 16 15 16 years ago and and then we've been sailing on and off together um, ever since then. And the summer or fall of 2016, um, after the Rio games, Maggie called me and was like, hey, like, let's go, let's go sail together in this boat. Let's, let's do this. Obviously, it was a lot more complicated than that, but that's a short version. Um, and it, it was a no-brainer for me to sign up to sail with Maggie. She's an amazing crew, an amazing athlete, and an incredibly determined person which are obviously all important qualities to have um, on this campaign trail. And we, we put in a lot of time together on and off the water. And I would say like, so we've been sailing together in this boat for four years now. Right. And I don't, I don't know. And like, but I guess I've just always believed in our team and believed in us. And it's a matter of, I, I had never sailed the boat before when we got, when we started sailing together, Maggie had sailed the boat for four years before so she obviously came with a lot of experience and I was like she was able to teach me a lot and I was just like trying to keep up with her so I you know there's a lot of learning going on early on and yeah well I'll chime in and instead of you're making me blush now <laughs> you're so, uh, thanks for saying the sweet things I mean I I have a ton of respect and uh, admiration for Steph and I think that's you know one thing at the base the core of our team is that we have a ton of trust and mutual ad admiration and, and mutual respect for each other. Um, we do very different jobs on the boat and we, you know, I'll say, Hey, no one can, no one can drive better than Steph, you know, and, and there are things that she does that no one else can do. And uh, that's a really cool feeling to sail with someone. And we also push each other really hard past our limits. We had to stop working out with each other because we were getting too competitive, you know, and, and we would do stupid things. I mean, we love to race each other. We love everything is so competitive, you know, even like I've sent more emails or, you know, in, in the fun way, we're always competing with everything. Uh, and, and we have to consciously like kind of cool that down sometimes, you know? Um, and we really like that because it, it, it just pushes, we find new limits in ourselves. And uh, I really appreciate that about Steph that she's like, you know, sometimes it's so irritating. No, I'm kidding, but Probably. we'll finish the day and she'll be like, but that could be a little bit better. I'm like, oh my gosh, we just made so much progress on this. Can we please just check this box and move on to the next thing? Steph's like, yeah, but you know, I really think it could still be better. And that's a quality about her that I think has really carried, you know, that in addition to her work ethic has really helped just drive the team forward because, you know, you just don't accept good 
you know, you always, okay, it can always be better. It can always be better. And it can be exhausting, but it's, uh, it's a pretty cool quality that has left, I think, Steph's determination to like continually improve has, has leaves us hungry. You know, we're like, yeah, that was a good regatta, but we could probably do 20 things differently. So next time, you know, it, it's, um, it's a funny thing because you just never feel like you're going to get to the end goal. And I think that's a nice way to keep the focus on the process instead of on the results. I'm totally fascinated by pair sports because it's such a, an interesting dynamic because obviously you're not on your own competing yourself and it's not a team where you've got six, 10, 12 people. It's this very intimate pairing, but you're not individuals. You're always reliant on the other person, but there's only two of you. So there's no buffer. There's no making it simple. And, Oh, I just won't deal with her today. I'll work with everybody else. There's it's just the two of you. And on top of this, you're alone on a boat in the middle of the sea. Yeah, and so it's like really, <laughs> and we're travel partners, and we're business partners. You know, we we share a bank account. We room together most of the time. We travel. Together. We go crazy with each other sometimes. <laughs> and that team dynamic is probably one thing that we spend half our time. You know, if we if we think about the amount of time we talk with a sports psychologist or debrief in our debriefs, like we're debriefing teamwork and communication so much of the yeah. time. And and we're really lucky. I mean, we laugh together so much. We love hanging out with each other. We choose to be around each other, which is nice you know and usually you know if you're in this kind of an intense relationship you're like I need space you know where people kind of frame the rest of their lives to, to have space for each other whereas we both live in Miami we've got similar friends and so we're really lucky in that sense but that's not to say that it doesn't get really hard it gets hard it gets uncomfortable sometimes we do our best work when actually when we're chafing each other a little bit <laughs> you know when there's a little bit of tension and there's a lot of feedback or maybe you know not a lot of feedback but someone's wrestling with a new concept and it's, it gets uncomfortable, but we spend a lot of time and energy kind of figuring out this dynamic because we learn differently. For example, I, I can hear things and process them for you. I, I process better that way when I can hear and, and write things down later and step is much more visual, you know? So even in a debrief, like I'll rapid fire questions and coaches will, you know, and Steph will be like preferring a diagram, you know, whereas I'll look at a spreadsheet and be like, that doesn't mean anything to me and Steph will get it right away, you know? So we have to be sensitive to different learning styles, different uh, mental coping mechanisms. Yeah. I'm very like checklist oriented. Stuff is very to-do list oriented, you know, very different ways of getting things done. Uh, and that can cause tension, obviously, but we put a lot of effort into getting along. <laughs> yeah. Do you see different team dynamics in your competitors? Do you see when the teamwork's not working or, or how that affects their races? Yeah, I mean, sure. I love a good boat park meltdown. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's terrible, but you're like, woo, there's some fuego going on over there, you know. Uh, no, we've all been there. <laughs> you can tell, like, the way, like, sometimes people are, like, sitting in their boat together. Like, they're kind of, like, on different sides of the boat, not looking at each other. And it's, like, you can almost, like, feel the awkwardness flying off the boat, whereas, like, you can see like another team or whatever, like engaging and laughing or whatever. Like you can, I feel like you can tell a lot or just like some mornings, like you go down to the boat park and on a race day and it's, you say good morning to someone and they like don't acknowledge you or whatever. It's like, okay, okay. <laughs> you have a good day. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> see you on the race course. <laughs> yeah. I think some of those team dynamics are also, um, we learn that, culture plays a really big role yeah. in yeah. what's the norm 
team dynamics. And so some of our training partners are from different countries, obviously. And, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to share some stereotypes, but like, it's, it, it'll be interesting because sometimes they'll say, gosh, you guys are just talking about this for so long. And I'm like, yeah, we're Americans. That's what we do. We talk things out. We talk about it, you know, and then we talk about how we talk about it. And, uh, our coach is Italian. And so sometimes she'll be saying things and she'll be very expressive. And I'm like, why are you yelling at me? She's like, I'm not yelling. And I had to remember, okay, that that's true. She's not yelling. That's just kind of the nature of how we communicate is different, you know? And so we've learned a lot about different cultures through this lens, you know, the teamwork that we've seen, but yeah, it's a really, it's a really important part of it. If, if we're not good, like teamwork wise, it's not going to be a good day, you know? Yeah. And we have some rules like, Hey, well, we'll fist bump before races. And even if we're so mad at each other, we'll still do that. You know? <laughs> Sometimes Steph sends me for a swim when, she, when she's really mad. <laughs> Did that once. <laughs> it's like a marriage, but you can die during it. <laughs> no, it actually really is like a marriage. Like we, we kind of joke about that all the time. Like we spend so much time together and like, I know Maggie's favorite meal. I know like, yeah, I know exactly like a lot about her. <laughs> So you've got the team communication. How do you communicate with the race officials or how did they communicate with you? Flags. Yeah. <laughs> this is old school nautical stuff. Like there's a, a, a nautical alphabet and each, each alphabet letter has a different flag. And then that flag means something in nautical terms. So for example, the L flag is uh, yellow and black checkered. The race committee puts that up. That means come within hail. So follow me, <laughs> you know, and that means they're moving race courses. So, you know, uh, they, they put different pennants up to tell you different numbers, like, uh, how many laps on your race course or which way, if they move the mark, there will be a change course, flag. a C horse. Yeah. Which is for Charlie is C and it stands for change of course. And then they'll do a yellow, or, I mean, sorry, a red or a green one. And that'll tell you which direction it went. So flags, it's yeah, it's kind of old school part of sailing that I love. And that's consistent across yeah. all of sailing, not just competitive racing, totally. correct? Yeah, like international codes. Yeah, back to like pirate days. Yeah, like the flags like mean the same to everyone kind of thing. But other race, other fleets like professional sailing, you can communicate radio, via yeah. radio. You know, so that's, that's helpful, but we can't race with a radio on board because we're uh, one design Olympic sailing. I know this is out of order, but I do want to know how you start a race how do you get the boat to stay still enough to be behind i assume you have to be behind the line so how do you stay behind the line and how do you get the boat started we've actually recently been spending a lot of time on these specific drills so it's a very relevant question to right now we both have different jobs on the boat during the pre-start we call it, which is the time before the start um and a lot of it is managing like our like you said, our speed to the line, like our closing speed, and then like knowing where the line is. So basically Maggie's job is to know where the line is. Um, she's sitting further forward in the boat so she can kind of get a better feel. And she has references that she takes on land um, to help her gauge like where we are um, underneath the line. And to be clear, like the starting line is a race committee boat and a buoy or another race committee boat. And then it's an invisible line between a flag and that buoy so it's like kind of like a trick thing <laughs> it's really hard to tell and we spend a lot of time working on on identifying where the line is in all different conditions but yeah so maggie's in charge of like our distance to the line and i'm in charge of our speed so she'll say like 
you know, we're two boat lengths under and we have like target distances for like the time that we are in the sequence and like the amount of wind. And like a general rule of thumb would be, we'd want to be like two boat lengths under the line um, at 20 seconds to go. So I'm like managing that, you know, managing the speed of the boat and like also managing like the boats around us, like trying to attack them and like gain like a powerful position on them, so to say. So there's, there's a lot going on in the pre-start of the race. We're like trying to gain like an advantage on the boats around us, but also like have our best start possible. Um, so once we've like managed the distance to the line and the speed, then we actually get into like the final acceleration. And usually like we're going, what, like two knots maybe, Maggie, um, in this like pre-start time from any, like under, from like a minute to 15 seconds. And then Maggie will, Maggie will say, okay, like, you know, we're good on our time and distance. And then I'll say, okay, like we're pulling the trigger at seven seconds. So then we start pulling the sails in, we start building speed and we start, as the sails start coming in, we start pushing our weight out on the boat as the boat is taking on more power. So we spend a lot of time on the actual start. There's so many different layers to it and there's so many different ways to execute it. And a lot of teamwork and good communication is required from both of us to, to execute a good start. Yeah, it's, it's a really hard skill, but a really fun skill to learn. If you misjudge that, you can't back up, can you? Can you back up? You can back up. We can't. Yeah. How? Yeah. So our boat is like, it's it, our, our boat is really fun in the start because we can kind of like really like use our weight and our, our power and our strength to kind of like throw the boat around, so to say. So I'll say like, I have terms that I say to Maggie, like reverse. And she like knows, okay, what we need to do with the sails and our body weight. And okay, we need flow. We need to go forward. She knows what to do with that. Or we, I want to attack the boat next to us. So we'll double tack up to them. And we have all these terms, like we were talking about earlier, like these short little pieces of communication so that we know what to do. And, you know, we're really under the pressure of time to execute everything. But I'll say that I'll just add that, yeah, we do a lot of drills to figure out how fast you can go from two knots to 10 knots or basically two and a half miles an hour to 10 and a half miles an hour. And you want to be as close to that invisible line as possible without being on the course side of it. And if you are on the course side of it, you are basically disqualified from the race. And the backup maneuver is pretty doable if you're already going slow. But if you've um, pulled the trigger, like Steph said, if you've trimmed in your sails, you've applied all weight outboard, and then the boat's going 10 knots at the line, you can't really stop at that point. You know, you, you could like drop sails, but you'd ruin your race. And you could basically stop the boat, but in order to go backwards, you have to be at a complete dead stop. So once you've yeah. made your decision to go, you're kind of going. Um, yeah, you're committed to it. Yeah. And if you false start, basically, do they call it a false start? They call it OCS, which stands for on course side. And sometimes you'll see it a U flag, which, is, which means that you cannot be over that invisible line after a minute to go. And they do that to kind of prevent people from just going over the line, backing up just enough and going, because that would be almost impossible to then accurately call the whole line if everyone was over the majority of the time. So they want everyone below the line for that last minute. They fly this thing called a U flag. So sometimes in the scores, you'll see OCS or UFD. And both of those are just basically a disqualification. You get last place plus two points or something. Okay. Cause I was going to say, do they, do they pull the boat off or do they let that boat race and then say, well, sorry, suckers. 
You find out at the end. You find out at the end. Yeah. Which is hard because actually like if that boat has a false start, like let's say, you know, you're like really close to the line and you hold back a little bit and that boat has a false start, but they don't know it. Like maybe they're in a more powerful position than you are. And like that can kind of screw up your whole race. And so like that person then like has a really great race, but they were disqualified. And then you don't, maybe you don't have a great race because you didn't want to push it on the line. Yeah. It can, can get tricky with that. Yeah. And and on the other side, usually if you have a false start and you start ahead of everyone, you usually have a pretty good race, you know, that puts you in a pretty strong position. So they're generally like your best finishes. You finish across like, Oh yeah, top five. Awesome. You know, and then you, there's a whiteboard on the back of the motorboat that they post who was you flagged in the previous race. So that's like the, the sale of shame. You know, you put the spinner girl away, your heart rate's <laughs> up and then you look up at the whiteboard and it's like, no, we did not get a second place. We got a you flag. Sometimes I won't tell stuff. That's happened in the past where I haven't told stuff. Like if I knew we were over or saw it, cause it can really ruin your mojo, <laughs> you know? You're like, Yeah, at that point, do you just want to do the race to get the practice then or? Well, you don't know, you can't see that whiteboard until you cross the finish line. Yeah. Until it's all said and done. Because there's always the chance that you're misjudging it very slightly or the officials don't see it. So you still have to race the race, assuming Uh, it's going to count. Because, or if somebody else caused you to be over, is that an issue as well? That somebody else could kind of push you in a way where they would get disqualified and you wouldn't? I mean, there's ways to like kind of, cover yourself up so to say like and that's like if if the if the boats around you are like getting like pretty pushy on the line we could say like and maggie's like we're really close we're really close then i'll say like i'll try to like keep us like a little bit further back so that like the ends of the starting line can't maybe see our number or like maybe we're covered a little bit it's part of the game knowing that they are on the line or over early, you know, that they're, they're pushy or punchy and then bailing out early enough, yeah. you know, sailing backwards and away from that group is part of the strategy. So generally it's a misjudgment. The whole group misjudges and they're all over, you know, or just a couple of people misjudge and then everyone can say, yeah, they're over the line. Wow. Finishing. Is it just the first part of your boat that has to get over the line or do you have to get the whole boat over? you finish when any part of your hull touches the line. Okay. So the hull is the actual fiberglass boat platform that we're on. So none of the sails, the bodies, the extensions, nothing else matters except the hull. Wow. It's just kind of amazing because you, you know, in other, other sports, they finish the race and, you know, at a hundred meter dash, you know who won, but mm-hmm. now you have to wait for everybody to finish and you have to wait for the whiteboard. Yeah. I mean, there's, Sometimes like our finishes are super close. Like I remember we had one in Germany in September that we came in from opposite ends of the finishing line um, with a Norwegian team. And we both like came in and then like sailed our boats to an angle that we thought would like make us cross the line sooner. And we, we you can see us on the video, after, like we're both like, who got it? <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> and depending on how far away that boat is, and the angles of vision, you, you really can't tell. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I really appreciate the volunteer race committees that call that line because that's gotta be so hard. And sometimes in fleets, they're calling a hundred boats. Luckily our fleets are usually 50 or 25 or something, but that's gotta be a really hard job, a skill. (laughs) Do they ever employ the drones 
to like photo finishes? I don't think they can actually use it as a way to score. Like I think this, but. Oh um, man, I'm sorry. Alice and I just got my whole little, I, I officiate roller derby. So I like the official side of everything. You got me on whiteboard. You're getting me on the arguments that are probably going on within your race officials committee about <laughs> do we use drones or not? I'm so excited already. <laughs> now she's going to look into sailing. <laughs> well, you know, well, and I live in Cleveland, so I have a lake right there. Perfect. We, we know some people. <laughs> and hey, Jill, actually, you, you might get a kick out of this. The rules change every four years. Oh, okay. And so the which is yeah fun for sailors you know because there are all these tactics that come from the rules and then you kind of learn the new plays every year and it's a race to learn them and this year is unusual because the rules changed the year before the olympics so usually it's the same for an olympic quad and so it's kind of a yeah i think it's fun you know and and one of the rules that specifically changed was when your boat the the definition of starting and finishing and so it used to be that if your bodies or your sails or equipment were over the line you could be called over the line early but you're you know your body was, but your hull was not, or vice versa on the finish line. If your sails cross the finish line, that you'd be called fit, cross, you know, finished. But now it's just the hull. And, and there is some kind of scuttlebutt, to use a similar term, that the reason it's the hull is because they might be able to, they're hoping to use like GPS devices some point in this quad um, to, to either substantiate the finish or to determine it at the time, real lifetime, you know, so that we're hoping technology goes in that direction that they could have trackers on the boats that would definitively say when the boat finished, but we'll see. So because of the delay, you have the new quad rules. They didn't postpone that. Yeah, exactly. Because some yeah. sports did postpone because mm -hmm. a lot of sports do mm -hmm. that quad rule adjustment, mm -hmm. but they wanted to make it interesting for you ladies. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We love it. I geek out on the rules and our training partners are like, oh, let's talk about them. And we love that part of it. It's a good strategic part. So excellent. Okay. This has been, oh my gosh, fantastic. So excited about sailing now. Thank you. We're excited. We're excited. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steph and Maggie. You can follow their endeavors at robleshaysailing.com. And they are on Facebook and Instagram at Robel Shea Sailing. We will have links to all of that in the show notes. Our next book club meeting is coming up at the end of April featuring Foxcatcher, the true story of my brother's murder, John DuPont's madness, and the quest for Olympic gold by Mark Schultz and David Thomas. And you can get your copy at bookshop.org slash shop slash flamealivepod. Or go to flamealivepod.com slash store to link to our affiliate store. We'll also be watching the movie version for Movie Club in May. I finished it already. Did you? Did you? Oh, man, I have to start. Yeah. I've been on I a haven't little... watched the movie yet, though. Okay. I've been on a little 1968 kick, and I have three 1960, at least three 1968 books, so I'm on my last one now. Welcome. Laura Wilkinson placed seventh and scratched at the 2021 Coral Springs Winter Invitational. And she got a nice write-up in the Miami Herald, too, about her quest to get back to the Olympics. So that was nice. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And bobsledder Josh Williamson was racing with Hunter Church at the, I think these would be the Olympic trials for the USA, aren't yeah, they? Like the national team selection. And they finished first out on the... Uh, west coast version and now they're coming back to lake placid to race the second half so 
Do you know what this means? He could be the next Olympic hopeful. I know. You have no idea. Well, you do if you've listened to the show, how desperately we need Josh to go to Beijing. <laughs> I just, I want him there so much. It's not even funny. I know. Our biathlete Claire Egan was competing at Nova Mesto last week. So the U.S. women's relay team placed sixth, which was their best finish since 1995. And that was awesome. It was a fantastic race. Uh, they all did so well. But then Rifey wasn't feeling it. And Claire shot really poorly in the sprint and placed 76th. So that meant she didn't qualify for the pursuit race. She's dropped to 33rd in the overall rankings. But there's still a couple weeks left. They're in Nova Mesto again this weekend. And she can redeem herself. And she did post a picture of, of Rifey in the corner. She did. <laughs> with its its sort of face turned to the corner, like just <laughs> standing there in shame with the dunce's hat on a rifle, which I didn't know you could do. I didn't know you could shame a rifle like that, but <laughs> it is well-deserved after that race. And speed skater Erin Jackson had kind of a nice week at the U.S. Championships. She placed second overall among sprinters, and she competed in both the 500-meter and 1,000-meter and like killed it with first and seconds all the way, except for one race where she was all the way down at fifth. Nice week for Erin. Yeah, and Must she be was the in, new Toyota. Right. And she was featured in Forbes on Forbes.com. Nice little article about her there. Author Andrew Marinus has re- released his new young adult book, Singled Out The True Story of Glenn Burke. Burke was the first openly gay major league baseball player and invented the high five. You can get the book on our store at bookshop.org slash shop slash flamealivepod or at flamealivepod.com slash store. And beach volleyball players Kelly Clace with her partner Sarah Sponsel will be competing this week in Doha. Still trying to pull into that second spot for uh, the U.S. to get to Tokyo. So we're cheering for you, Kelly. Oh, speaking of cheering for, do you have friends who love the Olympics and Paralympics? Please tell them about this show because we're still looking for more of our people. We are at flamealivepod.com and all of your favorite podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Ghana. So you can find us there and follow us. All right, it's time for our Atlanta moment. We are celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Atlanta 1996 Olympics all year long with uh, stories and anecdotes. And I figured since we talked about sailing today, why don't we talk about how the sailing was organized for 1996? Okay, I know nothing because I can guarantee you I watched no sailing in 96. Uh, No, neither did I. Sailing was held in Savannah, and Savannah was really excited when Atlanta won the bid, and they really were gunning to host a whole bunch of stuff. They wanted to host softball. They wanted to host beach volleyball. They lost out on both of those. But because uh, Atlanta is landlocked and Savannah is the closest city to open water, Savannah was the shoe-in to get the sailing competition. And they went to town, man. They had their own opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies. I'm not kidding you. They have a cauldron. The cauldron is still there along the river. You can see it. So the sailing competition was pretty big. They had 461 athletes from 78 countries, and they had 10 classes of boats. And so it was like 10 races a day or more. It was a lot of stuff. So kind of here, it was kind of a fun timeline, too. So the Atlanta Games opened on July 19th, right? So July 9th, 
the torch relay comes to Savannah and it the torch arrives by a big schooner boat and then they kind of transfer that to a little motorboat and the motorboat brings it to shore and they have a big ceremony and then the torch goes on its way. Uh, three days later, Hurricane Bertha made landfall in southeast North Carolina. It was a Category 2 storm, so it was far enough away that Savannah wasn't really affected, but they did pull all, all the boats out of the water for a couple of days. And you know what that meant if they're pulling boats out of the water. Um, Logistical nightmare. Exactly. So on the 19th, Atlanta has their opening ceremonies. On the 20th, Savannah has its opening ceremonies. And this was the first time ever that a city outside of the host city also had opening ceremonies for their event. And it was a big deal. Walter Cronkite was there because apparently he was a big he was a big sailing aficionado. So he was there to speak. Trisha Yearwood performed. <laughs> I know it was a big deal. And it was really rainy. So apparently uh, Walter Cronkite didn't really get to talk much because it just poured rain and they were shuttled him off stage. But then the flame arrived by boat again, made its way around the city, came to Forsyth Park where the cauldron was and the person who lit the flame was named Michael Cohen and he was a weightlifter from the 1980 Olympic team who stopped I know so then the events took place over nine days in the Wausau Sound off the Atlanta Ocean so to get there they they had a marina on Wilmington Island. They had a little temporary barge structure. They had um, for all the facilities. Spectators could only watch them from boats, but you couldn't bring your personal boat. You had to get on a large boat that held like 150 people, and you sailed from kind of downtown Savannah through the river and out into the sound. And then they, you'd be out there basically all day, and they'd give you a buffet lunch on the boat too. Not a bad Which deal. Could be lovely. That sounds lovely, actually. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and you're with a bunch of people, and there were like a thousand people got tickets per day, basically. So they had all of these boats there. Could have. It sounded like it could have been a lot of fun. And then on top of that, Savannah had a whole bunch of arts events during this time because they had a 100-day cultural and educational festival called Arts Ashore that started at the beginning of May and went through the the Olympic Games. And they did 100 events, so an event a day. And so it would be like theater and concerts. And one of the ones while uh, the sailing was on was a free concert with Ray Charles. Not a bad deal. Savannah seemed like the best place to be. <laughs> right. So they also had a, a closing ceremonies. along, And the, the music this time was a beach music review with the Shirelles, the Platters, and the Embers. They better have kept the Shirelles away from the flame because their hair would have just gone up with all the hairspray involved. <laughs> probably, probably. So one, I want to tell you one little quick story about uh, the, the, the medals kind of were allocated. It ended up a whole bunch of countries got a few medals each on, on River Street in downtown Savannah. There's an Olympic cafe. It was a Greek, a Greek eatery. So it was one of the places where the sailors like to hang out. Who doesn't like to hang out at a Greek diner? <laughs> right? So they were there every night. And then Nicholas Kaklamanakis won gold in windsurfing. So, of course, he came in with a gold medal. Owners are going crazy over this because 
he was like their son by that point, right? Of course. So they had this huge party that lasted till three or four in the morning and smashing plates every place, as you do. Yeah, I mean, this is a Greek diner with a Greek gold medal in the city that's already having a party every night. Right. Smash some plates, man. So, yeah, that was sailing in Savannah. So we have a little bit of Tokyo 2020 news for you. The new head of the organizing committee for Tokyo 2020, Seiko Hashimoto, said the other week, we will decide by March 25th whether or not we will have foreign spectators at the games. However, now there are reports. This is coming from the Kyoto News that has uh, some government sources unnamed who says that there will be no foreign spectators allowed at the games. Apparently, there's going to be a meeting next week with a formal announcement, which made me think this is kind of like last year, where it was, are we going to have the games? Are we going to have the games? And they just kind of kept forcing the committee's hand to make a decision. Yeah. Well, we can't we can't say if that is the official decision that we're really surprised. No, I'm not surprised. So the committee would now need to deal with refunding foreign ticket holders, how to deal with spectators that are... Invited by corporate sponsors, which would be, it's an interesting twist. Like if you're Coca-Cola and you want to invite some people who aren't living in Japan to the games, are you allowed to do that? And even Coca-Cola executives, never Mm -hmm. mind just the invites, like the actual sponsors themselves, can they come? Good question. Good, good question. So we will find more out about that in the coming days and weeks. The Kyoto News also said that athletes will likely be tested more often than at least once every four days because of all the variants that are out and about now. And then they said the number of athletes to march in the opening ceremony is expected to be around a third of previous games, mostly due to the fact that they won't be at the athlete's village yet. I'm kind of surprised that it even would be that many. That's a good point. So it'll be it'll be, you know what, shorter parade of nations. Yeah. Oh, and I was kind of thinking they might just do the flag bearers. Yeah, you you wonder why they wouldn't do just that. But maybe it's like part of the deal. We cannot let this go. And maybe maybe they're hoping that by July it will be the pandemic will be more in control by then. That's that's kind of what I'm hoping. Okay, we have to make a tough decision about foreign spectators. But maybe that means if if things keep going in the right direction, maybe we can have all of these athletes around each other. So we'll see. And that decision they really don't have to make until, I don't want to say the last minute, but kind of the last minute. Right. And then the torch relay opening ceremony will be held without spectators to prevent the spread of the virus. Scary thought, it's one year to go to the Paralympics. So today, for the first time ever, I saw some video of para biathlon. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It was in the, they were sort of in the ski, uh, the sit ski thing? The, like the sled. Yeah, yeah. The ski sled. Yeah. And they throw themselves over. Oh, right. Yeah. I don't know why I never thought of this, but watching it. So now I'm super excited for <laughs> para biathlon. 
But they are continuing to go on with their test events, and we will have more of a report uh, later this week from the IOC. So we will bring you more news from Beijing next week. Milan Cortina has announced its logo competition. The Italians need your help in deciding. <laughs> right. So they've whittled it down to two choices and they want you to vote for the logo. And it looks like you can vote three times. We'll have a link in the show notes, but it's MilanCortina2026.org. So they've got the the two logos. One looks looks like they wrote 26 in uh, like an icy window or in the snow. And it looks it also looks like a ZB, if you're me. And the video that went with that is one of those inspirational, uplifting. Oh, there was videos with the logos? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, oh, because wow. then the other logo is kind of boxy and it has it's red and green and and um, has a snowflake has a snowflake. But that one, actually, when you see the video, it's dynamic. So it kind of turns and there's different uh, things that go into those boxy areas. So. It's kind of, it reminded me of the LA 2028 logo, which is a lot more dynamic too. So um, that, that's why I was voting for that one. I was very torn between the two of them. I have not yet voted because I really can't decide. So I love to hear people's opinions on these two logos. <laughs> Listener Don and I were talking about it on Twitter and he's a little underwhelmed and he's a, he's a designer. So um, but Maybe he that's also why I'm thought, having trouble. Yeah. So he also thought that the uh, 26 was a ZB. The, the one problem you have, uh, not you, but the one problem that exists with that second logo, the the Dado, there's like the the logo Futura and then the logo Dado. That's the one with it's it looks like a, 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 a tall cube with a snowflake on the top and a two on one side and the six on the other. And the font is reminiscent of video games. Well, so, I would like to hear people pitch which one they like better because I am really indecisive. All right. Get at us. We are at uh, flamealivepod at gmail.com or 208-FLAME-IT is our voicemail line. Milan Cortina also announced its fan club, which I immediately signed up for. And it sounds oh, like... Oh, this is not like Paris where they don't let us in. See, it's because the Italians. <laughs> yeah, and I know. Gigi's they... coming over. Mario's coming over. Georgia's coming over. Everybody's coming over. The big bowl of pasta. Now, I, I'm guessing that even though you're in the fan, like I'm in the fan club, but I'm in America, there's probably not going to be as many opportunities for me here in America as there might be in Europe. But it was, I felt very included, not part of Le Club. So you, uh, they're going to have ambassadors and you'll be able to extend exclusive events with them. They'll probably have some experiences, uh, probably virtual experiences, I'm guessing, to explore the Olympic territories. There's going to be an Olympic tour. They're going to have a fan wall where you can get your photo added. They'll have exclusive content. They've got a newsletter. And uh, you could become uh, be selected to become a voice of Milan Cortina on uh, social networks. And you'd be the first to participate in the selection of volunteers. So if you wanted to volunteer... For 2026, join the fan team. I just want them to give me some biscotti and an espresso and I'll sit in a corner and not cause any trouble. <laughs> well, you'd be one of those kind of volunteers who sits in the chair and is just like, yeah, I don't do anything. I don't know anything. Whatever. Go over there. No, I would be one of those volunteers who would be, you know, yelling at people to get off their lawn. 
You, Mario, off the lawn. <laughs> what, what? You call this pasta? This is, this is the nothing. All right, while well, you work on that. I think that'll do it for this week. We'll call it a show. Let us know what you think of 49er FX Sailing. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. We have a whole bunch of athlete interviews lined up to bring you, uh, but they haven't happened yet, so they don't happen until they happen. We'll let you know who's coming on. Well, we'll probably post it in the Facebook group. So get on there and you'll find out who's coming on the show soon. So as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. going on over there, you know.